Chapter Eight, Section Five, of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Eight, Section Five. The Relation of German Nationality to Democracy. The German Empire presents still another phase of the relation between democracy and nationality, and one which helps considerably towards an understanding of the varied possibilities of that relationship. The German national organization and policy was wrought in a manner entirely different from that of either France or England. In the two latter countries, political freedom was conquered only as a result of successive revolutions, and the ruling classes were obliged to recognize the source of these political reformations by renouncing all or a large part of their inherited responsibilities in germany on the other hand or rather in prussia as the maker of modern germany the various changes in the national organization and policy which have resulted in the founding of a united nation originated either with the crown or with the royal councillors the prussian monarchy has consequently passed through the revolutionary period without abandoning its political leadership of the prussian state it has created a national representative body but it has not followed the english example and allowed such a body to tie its hands and it has remained consequently the most completely responsible and representative monarchy in europe up to the present time this responsibility and power have on the whole been deserved by the manner in which they have been exercised German nationality as an efficient political and economic force has been wrought by skillful and patriotic management out of materials afforded by military and political opportunities and latent national ties and traditions. During the 18th century the Prussian monarchy came to understand that the road to effective political power in Germany was by way of a military efficiency disproportionate to the resources and population of the kingdom. In this way, it was able to take advantage of almost every important crisis to increase its dominion and its prestige. Neither was Prussian national efficiency built up, merely by a well-devised and practicable policy of military aggression. The Prussian monarchy had the good sense to accept the advice of domestic reformers during its period of adversity, and so contributed to the economic liberation and the educational training of its subjects. Thus the modern German nation has been, at bottom, the work of admirable leadership on the part of officially responsible leaders, and among those leaders, the man who planned most effectively and accomplished the greatest results was Otto von Bismarck. It requires a very special study of European history after 1848 to understand how bold, how original, how comprehensive, and how adequate for their purpose Bismarck's ideas and policy gradually became and it requires a very special study of Bismarck's own biography to understand that his personal career, with all its transformations, exhibits an equally remarkable integrity. The Bismarck of from 1848 to 1851 is usually described as a country squire, possessed by obscurantist medieval ideas wholly incompatible with his own subsequent policy. But while there are many superficial contradictions between the country squire of 1848 and the Prussian minister and German chancellor, the really peculiar quality of Bismarck's intelligence was revealed in his ability to develop a constructive German national policy out of the prejudices and ideas of a Prussian junker. Bismarck, in 1848, was primarily an ardent Prussian patriot who believed that the monarchy was divinely authorized to govern the Prussian people, 
and that any diminution of this responsibility was false in principle and would be baleful in its results these ideas led him in eighteen forty eight to oppose the constitution granted by frederick william the fourth and to advocate the repression of all revolutionary upheavals he never essentially departed from these principles but his experience gradually taught him that they were capable of a different and more edifying application the point of view from which his policy his achievements and his career can be best understood is that of a patriotic prussian who was exclusively intelligently and unscrupulously devoted to the welfare as he conceived it of his country and his king as a loyal prussian he wished to increase prussian influence among the other german states because that was the only way to improve her standing and greatness as a european power and he soon realized that austria constituted the great obstacle to any such increase of prussian influence he and only he drew the one sufficient inference from this fact inasmuch as prussia's future greatness and efficiency depended absolutely on the increase of her influence in germany and inasmuch as austria barred her path prussia must be prepared to fight austria and must take every possible provision both diplomatic and military to bring such a war to a successful issue such a purpose meant of course the abandonment of the policy which prussia had pursued for a whole generation the one interest which bismarck wanted the prussian government to promote was the prussian interest no matter whether that interest meant opposition to the democracy or cooperation therewith and the important point in the realization of this exclusive policy is that he soon found himself in need of the help of the german democratic movement his resolute and candid nationalism in the end forced him to enter into an alliance with the very democracy which he had begun by detesting it must be admitted also that he had in the beginning reason to distrust the prussian and the german democracy the german radicals had sought to compass the unification of germany by passing resolutions and making speeches but such methods which are indispensable accessories to the good government of an established national community were utterly incompetent to remove the obstacles to german unity these obstacles consisted in the particularism of the german princes the opposition of austria and looming in the background the possible opposition of france and bismarck alone thoroughly understood that such obstacles could be removed by war and war only but in order to wage war successfully a country must be well armed and in the attempt to arm prussia so that she would be equal to asserting her interests in germany bismarck and the king had to face the stubborn opposition of the prussian representative assembly bismarck did not flinch from fighting the prussian assembly in the national interest any more than he flinched under different circumstances from calling the german democracy to his aid when by this policy at once bold and cautious of prussian aggrandizement he had succeeded in bringing about war with austria he fairly announced a plan of partial unification based upon the supremacy of prussia and a national parliament elected by universal suffrage and after the defeat of austria he successfully carried this plan into effect it so happened that the special interest of prussia coincided with the german national interest it was prussia's effective military power which defeated austria and forced the princes to abate their particularist pretensions it was prussia's comparatively larger population which made bismarck insist that the german nation should be an efficient popular union rather than a mere federation of states and it was bismarck's experience with the anti-nationalism liberalism of the prussian assembly elected as it was by a very restricted suffrage 
which convinced him that the national interest could be as well trusted to the good sense and the patriotism of the whole people as to the special interests of the bourgeoisie thus little by little the fertile seed of bismarck's prussian patriotism grew into a german semi-democratic nationalism and it achieved this transformation without any essential sacrifice of its own integrity he had been working in prussia's interest throughout and he saw clearly just where the prussian interest blended with the german national interest and just what means whether by way of military force or popular approval were necessary for the success of his patriotic policy when the prussian minister president became the imperial chancellor he pursued in the larger field a similar purpose by different means the german national empire had been founded by means of the forcible coercion of its domestic and foreign opponents it remained now to organize and develop the new national state and the government under bismarck's lead made itself responsible for the task of organization and development just as it had made itself responsible for the task of unification according to the theories of democratic individualistic liberalism such an effort could only result in failure because from the liberal point of view the one way to develop a modern industrial nation was simply to allow the individual every possible liberty but bismarck's whole scheme of national industrial organization looked in a very different direction he believed that the nation itself as represented by its official leaders should actively assist in preparing an adequate national domestic policy and in organizing the machinery for its efficient execution he saw clearly that the logic and the purpose of the national type of political organization was entirely different from that of a so-called free democracy as explained in the philosophy of the german liberals of eighteen forty eight the manchester school in england or our own jeffersonian democrats and he successfully transformed his theory of responsible administrative activity into a comprehensive national policy the army was if anything increased in strength so that it might remain fully adequate either for national defense or as an engine of german international purposes a beginning was made toward the creation of a navy a moderate but explicit protectionist policy was adopted aimed not at the special development either of rural or manufacturing industries but at the all-round development of germany as an independent national economic unit in prussia itself the railways were bought by the government so that they should be managed not in the interest of the shareholders but in that of the national economic system the government encouraged the spread of better farming methods which have resulted in the gradual increase in the yield per acre of every important agricultural staple the educational system of the country was made of direct assistance to industry because it turned out skilled scientific experts who used their knowledge to promote industrial efficiency in every direction german activity was organized and was placed under skilled professional leadership while at the same time each of these special lines of work was subordinated to its particular place in a comprehensive scheme of national economy this paternalism has moreover accomplished its purpose german industrial expansion surpasses in some respects that of the united states and has left every european nation far behind germany alone among the modern european nations is in spite of the temporary embarrassment of imperial finance carrying the cost of modern military preparation easily and looks forward confidently to greater successes in the future she is at the present time a very striking example of what can be accomplished for the popular welfare by a fearless acceptance on the part of the official leaders of economic as well as political responsibility
and by the efficient and intelligent use of all available means to that end. Inevitably, however, Germany is suffering, somewhat, from the excess of her excellent qualities. Her leaders were not betrayed by the success of their foreign and domestic policies to attempt the immediate accomplishment of purposes, incommensurate with the national power and resources, but they were tempted to become somewhat overbearing in their attitude towards their domestic and foreign opponents. No doubt a position which was conquered by aggressive leadership must be maintained by aggressive leadership, and no doubt, consequently, the German imperial power could not well avoid the appearance and sometimes the substance of being domineering. But the consequence of the Bismarckian tradition of bullying and browbeating one's opponents has been that of intensifying the opposition to the national policy and of compromising its success. France has been able to escape from the isolation in which she was long kept by Bismarck after the war, and has gradually built up a series of understandings with other powers, more or less inimical to Germany. The latter's standing in Europe is not as high as it was ten years ago, in spite of the increased relative efficiency of her army, her navy, and her economic system. Moreover, an equally serious and dangerous opposition has been created at home. The government has not succeeded in retaining the loyal support of a large fraction of the German people. A party which is composed for the most part of working men, and which has been increasing steadily in the number of its adherents, is utterly opposed to the present policy and organization of the imperial government, and those social democrats have for the most part been treated by the authorities with repressive laws and abusive epithets. Thus a schism is being created in the German national system, which threatens to become a source of serious weakness to the national efficiency and strength. That the existence of some such domestic opposition is to a certain extent unavoidable, must be admitted. A radical incompatibility exists between the national policy of the imperial and Prussian governments and the social democratic program, and the imperial authorities could not conciliate the social democrats without abandoning the peculiar organization and policy which have been largely so responsible for the extraordinary increase in the national well-being. On the other hand, it must also be remembered that the Prussian royal power has maintained its nationally representative character and its responsible leadership, quite as much by its ability to meet legislative popular grievances and needs as by its successful foreign policy. The test of German domestic statesmanship hereafter will consist in its ability to win the support of the industrial democracy created by the industrial advance of the country, without impairing the traditional and the existing practice of expert and responsible leadership. The task is one of extreme difficulty, but it is far from being wholly impossible, because the Social Democratic Party in Germany is, every year, becoming less revolutionary and more national in its outlook. But at present, little attempt is being made at conciliation, and the attitude of the ruling classes is such, that in the near future none is likely to be made. In this respect they are false to the logic of the origin of German political unity. The union was accomplished with the assistance of the democracy, and on a foundation of universal suffrage. As Germany has become more of a nation, the democracy has acquired more substantial power, but its increase in numbers and weight has not been accompanied by any increase of official recognition. The political organization of Germany is consequently losing touch with those who represent one essential aspect of the national growth. It behooves the ruling classes to tread warily, or they may have to face a domestic opposition more dangerous than any probable foreign opposition. 
The situation is complicated by the dubious international standing of the German Empire. She is partly surrounded by actual and possible enemies, against whom she can make headway only by means of continuous vigilance and efficient leadership, while at the same time, her own national ambitions still conflict in some measure with the interests of her neighbors. Her official foreign policy since 1872 has undoubtedly been determined by the desire to maintain the peace of Europe under effective guarantees, because she needed time to consolidate her position and reap the advantages of her increasing industrial efficiency. But the German and European statesmen are, nonetheless, very conscious of the fact that the German Empire is the European power, which has the most to gain in Europe from a successful war. Some Frenchmen still cherish plans of revenge for 1870, but candid French opinion is beginning to admit that the constantly increasing resources of Germany in men and money make any deliberate policy of that kind almost suicidal. France would lose much more by a defeat than she would gain from a victory, and the fruits of victory could not be permanently held. Italy, also, has no unsatisfied ambition which a war would gratify, except the addition of a few thousand Austrian Italians to her population. Russia still looks longingly towards Constantinople, but until she has done something to solve her domestic problem and reorganize her finances, she needs peace rather than war. But the past successes of Germany and her new and increasing expansive power tempt her to cherish ambitions which constitute the chief menace to the international stability of Europe. She would have much to lose, but she would also have something to gain from the possible disintegration of Austria-Hungary. She has possibly still more to gain from the incorporation of Holland within the empire. Her increasing commerce has possessed her with the idea of eventually disputing the supremacy of the sea with Great Britain. And she unquestionably expects to profit in Asia Minor from the possible breakup of the Ottoman Empire. How seriously such ambitions are entertained, it is difficult to say, and it is wholly improbable that more than a small part of this enormous program of national aggrandizement will ever be realized. But when Germany has the chance of gaining and holding such advantages as these from a successful war, it is no wonder that she remains the chief possible disturber of the European peace. In her case, certainly, the fruits of victory look more seductive than the penalties of defeat look dangerous, and the resolute opposition to the partial disarmament, which she has always offered at the Hague Conference, is the best evidence of the unsatisfied nature of her ambitions. Germany's standing in the European system is, then, very far from being as well-defined as are those of the older nations, like France and Great Britain. The gradual growth of a better understanding between France, Great Britain, and Russia is largely due to an instinctive coalition of those powers who would be most injured by an increase of the German influence and dominion. And the sense that Europe is becoming united against them makes German statesmen more than ever on their guard and more than ever impatient of an embarrassing domestic opposition. Thus Germany's aggressive foreign policy has, so far, tended to increase the distance between her responsible leaders and the popular party. And there are only two ways in which this schism can be healed. If German foreign policy should continue to be as brilliantly successful as it was in the days of Bismarck, the authorities will have no difficulty in retaining the support of a sufficient majority of the German people just as the victory over Austria brought King William and Bismarck forgiveness from their parliamentary opponents. On the other hand, 
any severe setback to Germany in the realization of its aggressive plans, would strengthen the domestic opposition and might lead to a severe internal crisis. It all depends upon whether German national policy has or has not overstepped the limits of practical and permanent achievement. End of chapter 8, section 5